and my approach is the same as I approach any problem. I kind of analyze their product as much as I can. I analyze their customers. I analyze their competitors. And then I come back with, okay, here's your taglines and key messages and core story and uh, quick points that customers are going to consume very easily. Guys, we've got Kevin in the building. Uh, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Uh, We've been, you know, we've been connected for quite a quite a bit. I met you back in 2013 at, uh, I think, I believe it's the National Business uh, Bi- National Technology and Business Conference. Um, one of like at that time, kind of the only and biggest technology conference. And um, yeah, I mean, we kicked we kicked it off right from the beginning. I, I really loved your story. I love the idea that you were trying to help other people tell their story, and I've been following you ever since. Yeah, and that's—I remember at the time you were you were running Mapian, and yes. I thought that was just yeah, I thought it was just fascinating to see what you had put together at that point. Yeah, you know, I, I run into a really pivotal time in my life and in my career because uh, I literally just, just before we met, I literally got off the stage off of bombing the worst pitch of my life. Um, and uh, you know, the, the national the, that conference was one of the first and biggest like pitch competitions uh, in, in in Toronto, and that's how I got in there. A friend of mine who worked at PwC, you know, told me about about it. Like, you have to apply. Uh, that was my first pitch, <laughs> and it was in, a, in front of a room of two hundred investors and seasonal, seasonal people on a stage with like a giant projection of like my slide deck. And that was my first real time, like, you know, outside of like, you know, I was at a, at a university incubator, pitched, I had like a few pitches, but real pitch competition. And I fried it, like it was so bad, right? And, but the craziest thing was, even though like, you know, it was like a two round kind of level, I, I got off stage, I met a great bunch of people who came to me and said, like, I like what you're working on. I like what you're doing. How can we keep in connect? And one of them was definitely you. Yeah, and I'm sure your heart rate was like 200 beats a minute at that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. I, I saw a picture somewhere of me, like from the stage, taking a picture of what I was looking at. And all you see is like a row, like all these tables, like a conference center. Like each table had like eight to ten people on it. I'm like, oh my god, what am I? What have I got myself into? But you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of one of the one of the pitfalls of being an entrepreneur. You have to get out there and do things that are uncomfortable. Yeah, well, I remember the first time I was kind of put into that situation, which was uh, I was a brand manager at Dell, and it was. Uh, okay, you're going to go to our conference and uh, we've paid for a speaking slot. There's there's 500 people. You're going to have to get up and speak to them. I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I, I hadn't done that before. It was just yeah. expected that, yeah, you're going to do that. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I have to figure that out. Oh, geez. How'd that, how'd that experience go for you? Uh, it wasn't too bad. Like I, I tend to do well under pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was still, you know, if I compare it to a flight, and uh, landing a plane, it was a bumpy ride with a lot of turbulence <laughs> and a pretty rough landing. Uh, but the plane landed safely. Yeah, for me it was a very addicting experience because even though I did I did I did poorly at that, um, I really liked the idea of like getting up on stage and having a focused you know a focused conversation. You know, uh, I talked a lot about it in this podcast, but growing up I had a huge time communicating and like putting words together. You know, I felt, you know, if you ever seen those meme of like of introverts, whole bunch of stuff going on in the, in the cloud, very little coming out, you know. Uh, so I, I always felt like, you know, out of balance because of that. But the first time I got on a stage was in, was in high school. A really pretty girl asked me to come to a speech with her. Obviously, I said yes. 
last minute she bailed, like literally walking into the stage. And then I had to do the speech for myself. And I remember like doing it, like what I, what, what like nor, in normal situations, it would, it would be hard for me to, co- to have a conversation because it's preempted. And like, you kind of know what you're talking about and you know what the delivery is and you know who you're talking to because it's, 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 it's more focused. It was surprisingly easier uh, you know, than, uh, than I expected, you know, as long as you take it as like, as like, you know, it has a, it has an end date and an end period and you're trying to accomplish something during that time. Right. So, um, so the idea of public speaking for me became like a challenge for me to get better at speaking in general. Yeah. You reminded me of, uh, of myself in high school because I was actually a really, really shy person, mm. uh, going into, I think it was grade 10, grade 11. I was like, I'm still really shy. And I wanted to try and like address it. So I said, well, you know what? Uh, why don't I do something that's like the, the school theater? Mm-hmm. And I figured, yeah, the, the Macbeth is, uh, they're, they're auditioning for Macbeth. Maybe I can get like a small part and get a little bit of like, you know, tiny little slice of stage time just to kind of work on that. And I figured the baby steps and I auditioned uh, and, you know, had to wait a week to see if the results were got up and it's like, uh, okay, you're Macduff, mm. which is like the second biggest part in the play. <laughs> uh, maybe the third, I think Lady Macbeth has a little, yeah, you know, a little bit of a spot as well. Um, but I'm like, it's a pretty big role. And I was like, panicking. I'm like, that's not what I wanted. What are you doing? <laughs> anyway, I forced myself to do it. And I'm glad I did because, uh, it, it kind of forced me out of my shell, so to speak. And I was like, you're right. It's addicting. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's do more of these. Let's do theater sports. Let's do, uh, let's do some more plays and yeah, yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, doing the, what's uncomfortable and doing the, what's scary, I think, um, you know, to the right person, especially people with entrepreneur minds, it's an easy identifier for who's an entrepreneur because like I, I suck I speaking to a few entrepreneurs about this as well. It's like heading first into something that into the unknown is, is a weird trope, right? Like think about it. Like, you don't really know where you're going. You don't really know what, the, what you're stepping off of, not just an entrepreneur, but even like doing what we're talking about, these kind of tasks, like we were never done it before. And you're doing something that, you know, it's out of your comfort zone. It's, it's so important to growth, right? And the growth that comes out of it kind of counterweighs the fear aspect of it initially, if you can get through it. Yeah. Well, the hardest thing that I deal with when I'm working with early startups, um, like I, I'm an advisor with some of the regional innovation centers, and the hardest thing that we have to get these, these founders to do is go talk to customers. Mm-hmm. Like you have to do customer discovery. You have to yep. go find a customer and talk to them and talk to them about their pain point and see if you're building the right thing. And they're so nervous to do it. They're just like, I'm comfortable building my software. I'm going to go do that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I'll be like, you know, two weeks will go by and I'll be like, how many customers did you talk to? One. Like, no, you got to go talk to like five a day. Yeah. Yeah. Like, It's interesting. Cause like, I, I feel like, you know, there's two kind of spectrums to founders, right? Like, um, like and entrepreneurship in general, right? We actually had a, a discussion about this, uh, two days ago on clubhouse. I recently got on clubhouse and, uh, we we're talking about, you know, a sales first mentality versus a product first mentality, you know, a technical, you know, it depends on the founders. If you're technically skilled or if you're sales skilled, but, you know, a sales skilled founder, you know, it's the type to put up a landing page and go do a bunch of, of pre-sales and go do, do a bunch of LOIs. Whereas a product led founder, a technical founder, <clears throat> you know, takes the, takes the, you know, takes the hurt 
and takes the time to build a product. And each gives like has a pros and cons, right? So when you hustle first and you do sales first, you're kind of limiting yourself. You know, you're you you get revenue really quickly and you can inject some capital in, but then you you know you eventually have to deliver and you're going on a slower growth path, more linear curve because you're making money and you're building, milking money and you're building, and you're growing. But it's it's generally safer. Whereas you know a technical founder, product first. You know and that's why SaaS businesses do so well, is that you know you you take you you build a product which then gives you product leverage. The product can go and sell for you. If it's really good, right? Especially if it really solves a good problem, and the virality of especially technology and and, and uh, you know technology-based products is just that you can build you can build product leverage really quickly and deploy it, uh, and if it solves key pain points, it'll just grow itself. Uh, but like on beyond that, like you know any early stage company, end of the day, you need to have some kind of sales acumen to think about how you're going to acquire the first few customers and move from there. Yeah, I think a good startup needs both of those people. Yeah. And I will clearly put myself, I'm in the, um, the hustle category. Mm. Like I love going out and talking to customers and figuring out what they need and then being like, okay, yeah, we can sell this or build this. Um, I'm not a builder, mm-hmm. but pairing with a builder, yeah, we can do great things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I do want to, you know, uh, break down a little bit of your history before we jump into what you're doing now. Cause I really found that fascinating. I mean, we talked about it in 2013 and it's always stuck in my mind about how you grew uh, at Dell. You know, um, you know, we had that discussion literally on the floor of this convention and you were telling me about how, you know, you, you joined Dell uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a very early level where the company was, you know, just, just, just starting to boom and develop, but you joined at a very, uh, very, very, uh, you know, I think, I think in the contact center doing after sales support. Right. And then from there you kind of stayed with it and you grew. And, uh, you know, I really like the stories you told about that period. You know, you're talking about how, like, you know, you got uh, you and everybody else in the company got uh, options and in in, in shares in the company as it went, as it went public. And uh, and everybody kind of cashed out around you and started buying stereos and buying cars and, you know, enjoying that kind of, uh, you know, the sudden wealth. But you're like, if this, you know, this company is going somewhere, let's stick with it. And you grew your professional career within that company as the company grew, as well as, you know, you held on to that uh, stock valuation till like when you needed when you needed it, aka when you exited and started what you're doing now. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about how, you know, how powerful it is to be a part of a growing company like Dell? Yeah. And you're most, I would say you're mostly right on on the 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 arc of the story. Okay. A couple details, uh, I think, have shifted over time. I actually started in sales. Mm. Um and it was, uh, at the time I did not want to go into sales. So I was, uh, I was doing training to be an MCSC because at that time I was like, I think the path for me is an IT career. Uh, so I was doing these help desk jobs. Uh, I had a contract that ended and I had a recruiter and I went to my recruiter and said, Hey, I need another help desk job. And he said, I don't have anyone right now, but, uh, Dell's going really crazy for salespeople. Uh, it was it was basically November of 1999. Hmm. I don't know if you remember what was happening then, but uh, that was Y2K. Okay, yeah. They were saying that uh, the world was going to shut down, the power is going to shut off, people are going to be locked in their homes. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that, and it never came to pass. Mm-hmm. It's come to pass now. <laughs> but uh, you know, at that time, they the government had all these tax incentives to buy computers and Dell couldn't man the phones fast enough. Wow. You know, they had two hour wait times on their phone just for somebody to buy a computer Wow! because 
at that time you, you didn't buy computers online. It was all yep. it was all phone based. Of course. Uh, and I I had done some telemarketing work in university, um, and I was like, I don't really want to do that. You know, I want a help desk job. Mm. But my recruiter was a friend of mine, and he said, Look, go to the interview. You'll do me a favor, uh, and if you like it, you know, I'll get you something in in three months. I was like, Fine, I'll go. So I go to this interview, and the first guy that's there is looking at my resume and he's like, he's rhyming off a couple of the places I worked in. He's like, DMS. This is one of these like call centers I worked at. Mm-hmm. He's like, we have some people here that used to work there. And I'm like, oh, well, well, who do you have working here? And he named, uh, he named this guy, Mike Basic. And I was like, well, that guy was my first boss in like university. And he's like, mm-hmm. well, that's good. He's going to be interviewing you today. <laughs> so, I get into the interview and it's, of course, we're just talking about like old times at this place we used to work at. And he's like, oh, you're hired, by the way. <laughs> and I was like, damn, <laughs> I guess I have to do this now. <laughs> so I got into there and I'm like, uh, I expected to be out in like two months. Yeah. Because I was like, I want an IT job. But I fell in love with this. Like I actually fell in love with like computer sales it was like it was just this nice fit mm-hmm. uh, and it grew i kind of grew into that uh i did consumer sales for almost a year then i went into b2b sales so I was selling to small businesses uh, then i, I became uh, an enterprise sales rep so selling servers and storage and uh tech equipment and when i did that i was doing that for all kinds of different types of businesses. So I was now selling to small business. I was selling to government. I was selling to large business um, all over the place. Mm-hmm. And it was about about four years in, I had another one of these moments where I was like, okay, I'm enjoying doing the, the technical sales, but I want to be a system consultant. I think that's the next step. It was kind of like, I want to be the guy out in the field building these big solutions for, for big customers. That's kind of what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And a manager I had at the time was like, yeah, you're not, you're not ready for that. Uh, you don't have outside sales experience. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to get that if you don't let me do it? Mm. And he said, well, there may be other roles that might give you that experience. And he said, there's a, you, know, you could be a brand manager and go into marketing and that would give you some exposure to that. And I'm like, well, I don't really want to do that. But, you know, if something comes up, maybe I'll take a look at it. Well, sure enough, our brand manager got uh, poached by Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And the company was like, well, we need someone to fill in until we hire, you know, a marketing MBA. So they said, uh, can you take this over for a few months while we figure this out? And I said, sure, I'll do that. And that's when I was like, okay, well, now I have to go to conferences and speak in front of people. Mm-hmm. And now I have to go to the trade shows and I have to be the... Uh, you know, we call them booth monkeys. You're sitting in the, <laughs> the, the trade show booth. Yeah. You've got a thousand people coming by and you're literally repeating the same script over and over and over again. <laughs> um, and I was brought into these really high pressure, high pressure sales meetings with, you know, the CIOs and IT managers of like the biggest companies across Canada. Our wow. account executives would be like, well, Kevin's the server guy. He's going to, you know, uh, convince you Mr. Bank CIO, why you should buy all of your enterprise hardware from Dell. <laughs> and then the account executive would sit in the corner with their BlackBerry. And I was like, I'm the pitch guy. 
Oh, geez. Like, I'm that guy who yeah. has to do this pitch. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so at first, again, it was like, I don't know how to do this well. Uh, I'm not sure you know, what's going to go on. And it was okay at first, but it was like, I need to get better at this. And the way my brain works, whenever I have a, a specific problem with something, um, I do a lot of like reading and analysis. So I read like every book I could find on presenting. Um, I watched a bunch of videos on how to pitch. I took some you know, presentation training courses and I built for myself this uh, basic process I call paces, which helped me architect a good pitch. Mm-hmm. And then I started applying it to these and it worked really, really well. Uh, yeah, the account executives are like, yeah, Kevin's amazing. He's coming to all my calls. Yeah, I was put in front of more trade shows and did more talks and things like that. And I really enjoyed it. And, you know, so six months go by and my manager was like, hey, by the way, we're, we'd like to keep you in this role if you want to stay in this role. I was like, I I would like to stay in this role because this is a lot of fun. You know, I don't have a quota anymore. I don't have that pressure. I get to travel across Canada. You know, I get to just speak to people. This is the best job ever. Uh, so yeah, I did that for, uh, but another five years doing kind of a brand manager role. And then I'd had another interesting pivot. Um, I started doing stuff for the U S so I was doing not only Canada kind of marketing programs and stuff like that, but I was working with the U S teams and Dell was going through this transitional period of we're buying startups. Uh, you know, the way Dell kind of evolved was, yeah, Dell started making PCs, then started making more complex systems like servers, uh, started selling to bigger customers, and the bigger customers needed more capability than they could build. So they started buying these startups to provide them with software. And I had put up my hand and said, hey, this company that we're partnered with, you know, we're using some of their stuff. It's, re- it's magical. Hmm. We should buy these guys because if our competitors buy them, we're going to lose it. And it was just an offhand comment in, you know, some management meeting, you know, a month later, Dell turns around and they buy this company. Wow. And then they go and they turn around to me and they're like, well, that was your idea. So we're going to put you in charge of their global go to market acceleration <laughs> program. <laughs> you do that <laughs> you know uh, I, I guess they figured that I had some capability to to grow yeah. a startup company and yeah I, I had some of that but I had to learn a lot as I went into this you know it was basically taking this company that was based in the states and figuring out how to grow in all these international markets so then I did a bunch of international travel uh, but I started working with the really closely with the development teams both like Dell's core development teams and the startups. And you could see like Dell had gone from this dynamic startup uh, organization Mm -hmm. into a traditional corporate environment with a lot of checks and balances and handbrakes. Yeah. Um, Whereas, you know, startup has that dynamic environment, like move fast, fail fast, you know, lean startup methodology, Agile development, 
you know, new feature every week, listen to the customer, all of this kind of stuff that uh, we find really exciting. And you know, what, what period was the, this? What, what year, year frame was this? This is about 2012, 2013. Crazy. Okay. Um, so yeah, we kind of, I kind of went through this, this phase where I'm like, Hey, this, this is a really interesting way to operate. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when I first started getting exposed to the whole lean startup methodology. And I got a unique perspective of coming from, Hey, here's a traditional waterfall development organization. Uh, and here's a startup organization, which one's more effective, you know, obviously the, the lean startup methodology and it, it, it made me really dig into it. It mm-hmm. made me really love working with the startup environment. Uh, Dell started buying more companies. I worked with a couple, uh, a couple of additional startups that they had and at around 2000, the end of 2013, 2014, that's when I started kind of this you know, latest pivot for my own career, which was, I don't know if I want to work for a big company anymore. Hmm. Um, I think I really like working with startups. I kind of want to keep doing this and it's hard to do this inside, you know, a, a big behemoth. Mm-hmm. Um, Dell at the time, you know, it was having its own kind of interesting financial challenges. Um, yeah, one of the challenges of being a, a public company is you can't do anything without the stock market knowing what you're doing and punishing you if you they think you're making the wrong move. Um, and so it, it had this kind of quarter by quarter malaise of, well, hey, we need to make some investments to look at future markets. Well, then their stock would take a hit. And if the revenue wasn't up by you know, a certain number of points, their stock would take a hit. Or if they didn't hit their profit margin, their stock would take a hit. And the behavior it causes is this, we call it guardrail to guardrail. Mm. Every quarter, there'd be a different focus. Um, the company would, you know, make some kind of reorganization. And then you'd have to learn how to do your job all over again. So I'm like, this is frustrating. Uh, it's not working for me. Yeah. And at the time, Dell didn't think it was working for them. So they went private. Like Dell actually took itself off the stock market. Said mm-hmm. we're buying back all our stock. Enough of this, you know, insanity. Let's actually take the time to like redo and make our own investments. And it gave me a golden opportunity at that point. Um, I was not one of the lucky people that got in at Dell when its stock went up like game, you know, GameStop stock. You know. <laughs> yeah. In the mid '90s, their stock went up ten thousand percent. Wow. Yeah. Uh, there are people that had gotten like stock options in the early nineties yeah. that by like the mid to late nineties, you know, kind of, they cashed in then for like millions of dollars. Wow. Where some people cashed their early stock options for a stereo. <sighs> yeah. And you had these people sitting beside each other at work going like, Hey, how's your million dollar stereo? Uh, <laughs> I was not in that. I was not in that environment, mm. but, uh, yeah, Dell had this, they basically came up with a voluntary bio program and they said, hey, we're going to make some some big changes. Uh, anybody that doesn't want to be along for the ride, put up your hand and we'll uh, we'll pay you out. And I was like, yeah, I kind of want out to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be my own startup fund. So I kind of put up my hand and I went to my boss and I said, hey, um, 
I, I think I want this package. Mm -hmm. He's like, really? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> He's not happy about it. Yeah. But, you know, it was voluntary. Anybody could put up their hand. Uh, so I did. And uh, that gave me a good runway mm -hmm. to start my own company. Uh, and that's kind of how I got to where I am now, running uh, the storyarchitect.com. That's that's uh, really cool. Like, I, I really enjoyed the story a lot because it's not something you traditionally hear about. Like, you know, you, you don't hear about somebody who climbs away to the top of the company and then leaves it uh, in order in order to pursue that freedom kind of mentality, right? People, like, and, and the idea that you once, like, you know, you got into Dell almost by accident, almost by fluke. Not even that. Not even that. You didn't want to be in there, but you got pulled, drawn in. That's that's really interesting. Like, I love I love the trajectory that you know uh, that life takes you on sometimes, right? It puts you on a on a path that you're not you're not prepared for, but end of the day, you benefit from. Yeah, it's it's kind of like sometimes you have to kind of direct where you're going, mm. but you also have to be open to opportunities because sometimes life surprises you. Yeah. Yeah, and. Yeah, if I hadn't taken the 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 opportunities as it kind of came along, I wouldn't be on the path that I am now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I continue to look for you know, interesting opportunities. Uh, so I've been running this company now for uh, seven years. So this is actually year seven. The yeah, and what we do is we kind of look at startups and small businesses, and we help them figure out what their story is and then how to take that to market. Uh, you know, it's a traditional service provider for, for startups and you know, we do really well. I quite enjoy it. Uh, but I'm also, I'm also at that point where I'm like, Hey, I would like something more scalable than this. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's a service business. It grows literally, uh, kind of, as you described, you know, a product company would grow more scalable. So, yeah, there's there's probably a point in time when I'll look at how do I get a product company rather than a service company, and it maybe I have to hire or partner with a tech person, or I join somebody else's you know tech startup as a, an advisor or co-founder or something or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you you you're speaking on me uh, speaking to to this when uh, we when we last spoke and we were catching up. Um, about the idea of pivoting, right? Like you get to these pivotal point, uh, points in your life, like every five, 10 years, where you're like, gotta, gotta move, gotta, gotta make some changes, right? And uh, that, that's where the growth comes from. Um, I, I wanna explore before we get into that, like, you know, the idea of, you know, the growth architect, you know, this agency you built out, servicing, you know, small to mid-range companies, helping to find their story. Um, where did that come from? Like, uh, you know, working with startups within Dell, when they acquired it, like definitely shows the appeal of that, but that marketing angle of, you know, helping find the, your story, where does that appeal? Well, it, it came from a couple of things. Um, mm. It wasn't a direct path from, let's say, Dell into the story architect. It was, yeah. uh, I actually started a company called Impact Assured Business Services, which is a little less, um, little less interesting. But I had a bit of a side jaunt while I was at Dell where I ran for the Green Party. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's, my mind likes to work on really big problems. Yep. Yeah, and I kind of like, I don't have the, let's call it the influence or resources to go and solve 
you know, some of the big things, but I'd like to. Yeah, but at one point I'm like, well, you know, I like some of the things that the Green Party is talking about. They're focused on the right challenges. Yeah. Um, Can you speak you know, to those? Well, obviously climate change is a big one. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the viability of our entire planet is at risk. So it, it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow, but, you know, you know, go at 50 years, there's big problems coming. Uh, the stuff we saw in Texas you know, last, last week, you know, that's just a, a small taste of what's coming. And, you know, fortunately, I think people don't like to address these problems until, until they're faced with it. Hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, there's multiple ways we could address it. You know, one of them could be, you know, governments can take action, but I think I've learned over time that it's, that's a challenging path. Um, I think a, a better path can be, you know, really interesting startups with, um, you know, technology solutions, social solutions, business solutions, you know, market solutions that can help address it. You know, Elon Musk is a great example of somebody who's using his influence to try and address some of these big challenges. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I did this side job where I'm like, I'm going yeah. to run for the Green Party. And for me, it was like, this is a test. I want to test to see, you know, how I like this path. Mm. Um, and it was an interesting test. Uh, you know, I brought a lot of things that were really interesting, which is I'm well-spoken. I know how to talk. I know how to organize. Uh, you know, we actually ran, I ran in Pickering. We ran a really good campaign. Uh, didn't translate into votes. Yeah. And it's just because since, you know, I, I don't have a name brand. The Green Party at that point didn't have a name brand locally to, to shift the vote. And people vote strategically. Of course. It's like, I don't want this guy in, so I'm voting for for this other guy. Mm -hmm. uh, so I kind of took that as a, it was an interesting test. I don't know if it's the right path for me yet. Yeah. And it, it was also around that time when I started my company. And I said, I can't do both at the same time. I have to choose. Yeah. So, you know, moving into the, the story architect and, you know, helping companies find their story, right? How'd that, how'd you get started? Yeah. So I kind of started with the, I know I want to do what I want to do. Um, my theory at that point was I will find social enterprises and I'll help mm -hmm. them tell their story. Like mm -hmm. I'll help them market better. And I made the classic mistake of, uh, I think this customer really needs this, this product or service and uh, they will buy it mm. and learned really quickly in about six months that there were, there was lots of interest, lots of social enterprises that needed help telling their story, needed marketing support. The only problem is they didn't have any money. <laughs> uh, and when you're, you're trying to build a going concern. Yeah. That is an important factor in having a market. Uh, and I looked, had a really hard look at that and said, yeah, probably need to expand my, market segment a bit mm -hmm. in order to you know eventually be able to pay my mortgage uh and things like that so then i started looking at some startups and tech companies and then there that was a bit more of a fit mm -hmm. uh, and what i found over time was you know our ideal fit is not early early stage startups because again they usually don't have any money but startups that are in the um you know 
kind of just past the validation stage, starting to look at expansion. They have some resources they might have gotten funded or uh, small tech companies that just couldn't afford to hire like a marketing VP or a full-time marketing manager. Yeah, these are organizations that uh, needed some help clarifying their story and then some ongoing support for that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our clients are you know, based on tech-heavy founders, so the people who are really good at building product uh, but find it challenging to express what that product does. Uh, that's something I'm really good at. Uh, I can, you know, and my approach is the same as I approach any problem. I kind of analyze their product as much as I can. I analyze their customers. I analyze their competitors. And then I come back with, okay, here's your taglines and key messages and core story and uh, quick points that customers are going to consume very easily. And here's how you turn it into web copy or email copy or whatever else you need to uh, kind of bring it to life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's something that, you know, I can do very easily. And then for those tech founders who that's really hard, that's a really good, a really good fit. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, absolutely. We were earlier talking about like, you know, technical minded founders, you know, technical minded founders, you know, they're one of the greatest, um, you know, some of the greatest minds of, of our generation. Cause they have some deep, uh, deep, uh, um, you know, understanding of, you know, some kind of technology, whether it be hardware, software, right? And they're going out trying to build these things. But one of the, the the problems of the innovation industry is that you also had to do so much more. You had to build a company. You had to manage a team. You had to manage finances, legal infrastructure, raising capital. Like there's so many other nuances around what you want to do, which is innovate and build this cool thing, right? And to get it to market, that a lot of a lot of a lot of people who, who can't keep up with that, you know, that's that's how they they fail, and generally that's why you'd see that like entrepreneurship, regardless of what we we see in social media, skews more for older people, you know, who, who is in their second third part of their career, uh, or for people who have done two three failures behind them, uh, and learn from those failures, right, of, of how to launch, not necessarily creating IP intellectual capital, but how to commercialize that IP. Right, so working with uh, strategists as yourselves who can help expedite that is it, it's part of the gambit. Yeah, and it, sometimes the hard thing is just like getting that that technical co-founder who really wants to to sit it and code mm. and saying, okay, let's go talk to a customer. Let's <laughs> sit down and, and strategize who we think the beachhead customers. Yeah, yeah. You know, who do we think needs this the most, and how do we sell to them first? Mm-hmm. What features do they want? Yeah. Um, that's sometimes those are hard conversations. And if it's, if that person is not willing to get out of that comfort zone, it's really hard to, to, to get them to, to scale a business. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I've seen some, like, you're right. I've seen some people that once they kind of get that, they're like, Oh, okay. I've got to do all of these other things as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some people can do all of it, but a lot of times they say, well, you know what? We need a co-founder or we need a partner. Or we need somebody that, can help us think that way. Uh, one of my favorite clients, like he's, yeah, he's he's exactly that tech person. He's building stuff in the storage space that uh, just blows my mind in terms of how he's re-architecting how storage works. Uh, but he recognizes that, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm not the best person operationally to like set up like corporate structure and set up you know, all of these things. I'm going to go recruit for somebody that can go do those functions 
Mm. You know, so I can sit and do more coding. You know, maybe I'm not the best person to to go and do customer discovery. So I'm going to recruit somebody that can do those things, and then help me understand what to build, so I can go back in my in my lab and build stuff. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had a really interesting discussion with the like a technical level founder. Uh, he runs like a hundred million dollar firm. Uh, sorry, a hundred million dollar tech a tech company, tech startup. And he was talking about like how some of the inspirations he took for, from uh, Henry Ford. Henry Ford was a tinker by 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 default, right? And when the company built, got to a certain point, you know, this massive scale, uh, he would frequently found spending most of his time in like a shed outside of the office. Uh, you know, but it was locked with a few other like high engineers and just tinkering away on like the next 10 years, what could be possible in the next 10 years. And he would automate the company to run on his own and empower other people that make the key decisions uh, while he focused on what he loved doing, which is tinkering and building, right? And, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's really interesting is, you know, trying to, try not to pull, uh, you know, the people who are natively, you know, built for that kind of technical role into into things they're uncomfortable with, but rather, you know, how do you collaborate and bring together, you know, contrary skill sets together to launch this enterprise together, right? And some of them could be doesn't have to be inside the firm, could be outside the firm. Yeah, right. fair enough. And that's yeah. I think as I look at my next pivot, that's part of what I need to to do for my own company is mm. figure out, you know, how to take what I do naturally build it into a process and get more people to do it and then be able to sit in my own um you know tinkering shed and build something else yeah i mean uh, that that's that's a key component right how do you take your ip and make it scalable right like scalable solutions um come with an interesting gambit right so they have to be able to repl replicated themselves and technology is one of the wonderful pieces of that so are you looking to like i uh, think you, you you hinted a little bit about it before Build your own internal technology that can you know do this, or uh, is it like a website tool, or would it be more like partnering with something else, someone else who's already doing something similar? Yeah, the hard part. Um, sometimes the hard part about what I do is the it, it's almost this like synthesis of information mm -hmm. into ideas and you know, kind of uh, messages and taglines and you know how do you automate something that's creative like that, mm -hmm. you know, that's a really hard thing to do. Uh, that's at this point is probably still people. You know, sometime down the road, it could be a computer algorithm that actually does that. Uh, but I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So speaking more about what you do, right? Could you give us some examples of like, you know, story architecting um, with or without, you know, mentioning any names? Yeah. So uh, we did work for this one dental technology company. Mm -hmm. uh, I won't go into too much detail, but they they built a, a device that helps dentists uh, basically do have to do less repair work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and we actually learned how like I learned how fillings fail. You know, part of the job of what, what I did, uh, we need to learn about what they do. And I said, okay, you've got a bunch of assumptions about how your product works. And how it's going to help dentists. I'm going to go talk to a bunch of dentists and I'm going to ask them what they think their problem is. Mm. And we're going to see these things match. So the, the, the fascinating thing is you know, if you look at how fillings are done, mm -hmm. uh, filling, you know, the, the, the dentist takes the, the cavity out 
then they put a resin in the hole and then they have to cure the resin. Mm -hmm. uh, they cure the resin through infrared light. Mm -hmm. And the, the biggest problem is dentists don't know how much infrared light to apply. They just wing it. <laughs> uh, it That's concerning. It's concerning. It makes me second guess every time I go to the dentist now. Yeah. Uh, you know, and what happens is if they don't apply enough, let's call it ultraviolet energy, that resin doesn't actually cure. It's still a bit soft and the filling can fall out. Hmm. Or if they use too much energy, they can actually expand it. Like they can overcook the resin and it can crack the tooth. Yeah. So if you can imagine being like a customer in that situation or, you know, and you've, you've had a filling and then something's wrong with it, you have to go back to the dentist. Um, this company made a device to help them solve that problem. Hmm. And when they wanted to tell the story of it, they said, well, it's a customer service story. You know, we think that dentists really care about, um, you know, the experience their customers have, and this helps them retain customers. I'm like, okay, let's go test that theory. And in talking to dentists, I was asking them questions about, you know, this challenge. And I wanted to hear how they thought about the challenge. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to listen for like, how do you, th what do you think about customer experience? And how is this? How many times does it happen? And, you know, I kind of learned some surprising things like one, doesn't happen that frequently that it's the biggest problem in the world for dentists. Yeah, they're like, it only happens one to 2% of the time. Um, yeah, frankly, it doesn't affect our customer experience. Yeah, it, it, it might happen to one customer in their lifetime. Yeah, yeah they're going to have to come back. Um, no, we're never going to lose a customer because the filling failed. Mm -hmm. yeah. So in a way, they really didn't care about the customer experience side. Yeah. What they did care about was the amount of rework they had to do and the fact that they weren't getting paid for it. <laughs> They're like, that's my chair time. I'm a, I, my, my practice has to be as efficient as possible because I only make money when I'm sitting in the chair doing work. Yep. And every moment I'm not sitting in the chair doing work or I'm having to redo work that I did before, I'm losing money. And, it, and it, frankly, it makes me angry. Mm. So makes sense. Yeah. it actually shifted like like the value proposition of this wasn't customer service. The value proposition, it, we actually use those words. It's, you know, uh, practice efficiency and share time. Like these are things that were really, really important. Um, and so there are things that we pick up on just by doing the basics mm. of let's go talk to some customers and figure out what their real pain point is. Um, let's go look at competitors and see, you know, how they're talking about their products. Let's do some SEO analysis and see what customers are searching for. And let's figure out the right things to say so that those customers will pick up on those and then you get more, uh, more traction. So that's, it, we kind of take these steps to figure out what is it that customers want to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I'll walk customers through is this, uh, this idea of uh, the, the thought process of buying a car. So yeah, and this is an experiment I'll, I'll use with, with customers I deal with. They'll say, when's the last time you bought a car? And so I'll do this with you. When did you, when's the last, what's the last car you bought? Um, 2018. Got, got what's the brand? Got a Honda Civic. Okay. Is this the first Honda Civic you've ever purchased? Yeah. 
Did you notice more Honda Civics on the road since you purchased it? Absolutely. So this happens to everybody. You know, most people, when they buy a new car, they notice all of a sudden that there's more of that car on the road. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something called the Bieder-Meinhof effect. And it unwraps a little bit about how our brains work mm -hmm. and how our brains process information. Uh, your brain uses, uh, your brain is about 3% of your body mass. It uses 20% of your daily caloric energy, uh, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. We evolved over time in energy scarce environments. So when you have an energy hungry device in an energy scarce environment, it's going to build algorithms to, con to conserve energy. Mm. So one of the things that the brain does is it limits what it pays attention to. Yeah, it's only going to expend energy and it, or attention on things that matter to it. The only things that matter to it are problems that it has and solutions that it's looking for. And so when you go through this process of buying a car, you, you have this big problem that you have to solve. My car broke down or uh, we have a global pandemic and now I can't rely on Uber anymore. So I have to buy my own car mm -hmm. and you go through this problem solving process where you start looking for information, you start categorizing your needs, and then eventually you start narrowing down on what it is you want. And once you get to that point of saying, I think the Honda Civic is the solution I'm looking for, it's like pop. You start seeing it everywhere because your brain is now, it's, it's primed to see it and it knows I'm gonna pull this into my attention uh, because it's a solution that is important to me. It's mm -hmm. worth the energy expenditure. Uh, this happens for everything that we are buying or consuming. And so a big theory of ours when it comes to messaging is finding those things that customers are attuned to uh, because they will pay attention to it. It'll draw them in. That's really fascinating. I, I really love how love those kind of brain hacks and how it's deployed into um, you know everyday life. Uh, one of the things, like uh, you know, I have a neuroscience and psychology background, and one of the things that I really enjoy about it is understanding like you know deeper sides of how the brain works, how society functions, how people think and communicate. Really gives an impact to how you frame things, uh, especially in a sale. You know, I, I have a ten-year uh, like uh, a career in sales, and you know, in sales it goes hand in hand. Understanding people is a, is a game of it, right? Um, are you familiar with Edward Bernard's, um, the father, the so-called father of marketing? Um, I'm actually not. Yeah, so Edward Bernard's is the nephew of uh, Sigmund Freud. Uh, he, when he came to America, he brought all the psychological understanding to uh, here, but he tuned it towards capitalism, right? How can we take deep understanding of the people and human mind and, 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 you know, and make capitalist inventions? So he 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 founded the the, the prior to um, modern marketing is what he called public relations, right? So how do you create markets? Um, so he's he's famous for making bacon bacon, right? So he so all all the industrialists, uh, you know, the pork, the, the all the 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 food industry at the time consolidated, and you know was, the industrialists at the time was famous saying like you know we can we know we can make money from everything from the loin to the hoof, right? But this particular part, the the this bacon fat area, is is notoriously like undervalued. Like you know, that's that's where we're losing money to. Like no, you know, we're not making any money from the hooves. We can make glue from the teeth. We can make do stuff. Like every part of the pig was like capitalized. 
So they brought him in to figure out how he can change this. And what he did was create a nationwide campaign in America about what the modern, uh, modern American family looks like. You know, that, that, that trope of the, the housewife like dressed up in a nice dress, the husband sitting there drinking coffee and like eating a newspaper, and a golden haired boy and girl sitting there all smiling, drinking milk. And what's in the plates is, is uh, uh, pancakes, sausages, bacon, eggs, right? Like a full hearty American meal. This is what it is. And through that imaging, sold bacon and turn it from one of the lowest rungs of the ladder in, 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 in of the pig, right? Selling the, of the pig to uh, one of the highest performing. Just flip the inverse curve, right? So everybody suddenly became bacon crazy. Before this methodology, bacon was considered like, like disgusting. Like it was like lowest rungs of the ladder. No one bought it, right? It was considered to be like the waste product, uh, uh, right? And uh, it, they turned the waste product into one of, the, one of the most like hyped meals that today has its own caricature and meals around, right? And, uh, and, and memes around. Uh, so the, uh, the power of like, you know, transformative culture can be utilized by capitalism, sometimes in uh, not so good ways. Well, I was going to say to that, he's, he also, he didn't only create the bacon market, he also created the uh, cardiologist market. <laughs> Absolutely. This is another thing, like, this is another thing that is actually, you know, if I look at one of the pivots in the future, uh, one of the things that I identified as a problem, is, I'll, I'll say 10 years ago, is what I call information laundering, mm-hmm. um, what they, you know, what is now called fake news. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this idea that companies can manufacture information to be whatever they want. Yeah. You know, and it, yet it started with those kinds of activities of, well, let's go market something. Yeah. The problem with this is that people can market the wrong information. Uh, cigarette companies have obviously done this. It, it's been a big problem with climate change because oil companies have funded disinformation campaigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it happens in... It, more markets than we think, and it has real negative impacts on our society. It's a big problem to solve, uh, and it's it's one of these ones where it's like it's impossible for governments to solve it, it at least at this point. Mm-hmm. It, is there a market solution to that? Who knows? Uh, but that's one of the things that my, my brain has been noodling on for a very long time. Yeah, I mean... Edward Bernard, you know, he he created the, the Melboro Man, right? Like the idea of like when cigarettes are becoming no longer a health product and were considered uh, dangerous, he's like, okay, it's dangerous. Only dangerous men do it, right? And then created the the archetype of the of the man on the Harley, right? Just smoking a cigarette made it made it like a cool product. Yeah, it's bad. So what? He took Sigmund Freud's idea of every person has a um, not a suicide complex. It's like a you know, when you when you stand on top of a high building and you look over and the back of the mind says jump, right? So he called that, like, everybody has self-destructive behavior. And if you could tune into self-destructive behavior, you, Edward Bernard's turned that and used it into the Melbourne Man and the, the Harley Davidson, pairing that with cigarettes, making it a bad boy thing, right? Uh, he did something similar with Colgate. You know, Colgate, one in three dentists recommend Colgate. He wrote a bunch of letters to, you know, uh, kind of similar to your story, kind of to, to that dentist and said, what brands do you use? And one in three, he said Colgate. So he put up a huge national campaign, like, you know, on, on newspapers, made it look like an article on the first person to make like a native advertising, made it look like an article saying one in three dentists recommend Colgate and made it look like a native article, but actually a full page ad, right? Saying, and that's where the, that trope came, one in three dentists recommend Colgate. And it's been running for like 50, 60 years now, 
right? So, but like now, it's like we have these high power tools that can predict us better than uh, than us, right? Like better than we know ourselves. Um, the social dilemma on Netflix, or Tristan Harris from the the the, the social impact. Uh, sorry, I forgot the the center he works at, but he talks a lot about this, where the tools now that exist to marketers and to and to uh, to industrialists, uh, you know, can can figure out segments of the population better than they know themselves and put things in front of them, right? Where does that lead to in the future and how can marketing be utilized either better to better people and push them into better foundations or can we, can we suck them in towards negative tropes that, you know, self-destructive behaviors? Yeah. And I mean, those kinds of things can be used for very benign purposes. You know, um, if I was at a yard sale and I was commenting on some drills that I saw, then I was like, maybe I should buy these drills. And all of a sudden I'm seeing ads in my social feed for hand drills. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's creepy. Um, but these algorithms can be used for, you know, nefarious purposes mm -hmm. and sometimes accidentally, you know, if you, you start clicking on a bunch of, uh, you know, let's call them, uh, you know, I'll just say racist articles on Facebook, Facebook's algorithm might be like, Hey, you like these, I'm going to feed you more of this stuff, mm -hmm. you know, which reinforces this really negative behavior. I mean, we saw this happen in the States. Yeah. Uh, it, and that to me is the, the scary side of these, uh, of these algorithms. So I think we have to think of how do we use marketing tools, which are becoming extremely powerful, you know, ethically. Yeah. Kevin, um, I know we've got, a, we've got a hard stuff coming up, so I'm going to wrap it up here. This has been really phenomenal. I really enjoyed this discussion. I hope to have you back on for a part two. I feel like we have a lot more we can diagnose. You know, in six months, I'll hit you up. Uh, love to have you back on. Absolutely. I'll, I'll be like Elon on the Joe, Joe Rogan program where he's on every like two weeks now. Let's blow it up, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kevin, stick around for a sec. We'll do a quick debrief. Uh, I know you got to go. Um, thanks again for coming on. This has been really phenomenal. Uh, everyone who listened in, thanks for tuning in.